everyone and welcome. I'm Susan Bright, Regional Managing Partner for the UK and Africa here at Hogan Lovells and leader of our Brexit Task Force. So this is the latest webinar in our Brexit series, Navigating the Negotiations. In our last webinar a few weeks ago, we heard from some of our colleagues in various EU27 countries and they provided insights on how government and industry is preparing in their various jurisdictions. As you know, the situation is currently changing by the minute, and we're doing everything we can to stay on top of the latest developments uh, and to share with you what those mean for you as our clients. The latest, of course, is the delayed House of Commons vote and now the challenge to Theresa May's leadership. We thought it important to carry on with our webinar today so we can keep you informed about the evolving situation and give you our best insights into what that means. So. Today we're going to cover the latest developments and then what next, including possible outcomes, different roadmaps, what these might mean and how we might get there. We're also going to talk a little bit about what life might be like in the backstop and what all of this means for business. And at the end, um, we will cover what we can do to help you. Today I'm really pleased to be joined by various of my colleagues. Uh, so Charles Brasted, uh, who's a partner here in the UK and heads up our public law and policy team with Andrew Eaton, who's a member of that team as well. And then Aileen Dussain, who heads up our UK international trade team. Peter Watts, who is a partner in our commercial law team and also heads up our TMT sector. And last but not least, Eduardo Oosteren, who is a partner here in the UK and co-leads our global privacy and cyber security practice. So, to start off, I'm going to hand over to Andrew to give us the latest update. Andrew. Thanks, Susan. Today we have truly reached a turning point in the Brexit process. In a dramatic and widely unexpected twist this week, Theresa May cancelled the meaningful vote in Parliament, which was due to take place yesterday evening, pausing the Brexit process while she seeks further concessions and assurances on her deal from the EU27. Since then, the Conservative Party Chairman, Graham Brady, has today confirmed that he has received the required 48 letters of no confidence to trigger the vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister's leadership of her party. That vote, which will be a secret ballot, will take place this evening. If less than 158 Conservative MPs back the Prime Minister, she must resign and a leadership election will take place to decide the next Prime Minister. If she gains sufficient backing to stay on, however, which at the moment looks like the most likely outcome, under the rules of the Conservative Party, her leadership of the party and her stewardship of Brexit could not be challenged by her own MPs for one year. The country awaits their decision. Meanwhile, with just over three months until the UK is due to leave the EU, the Prime Minister's controversial last-ditch attempt to secure a deal that can command the support of Parliament has raised the stakes even further with time running out for both the UK and the EU adequately to prepare for a possible no-deal Brexit. Let's remind ourselves how we got here. The draft withdrawal agreement and political declaration were agreed and received the backing of both the UK Cabinet and the European Council in mid to late November. The Prime Minister then presented the deal to the House of Commons and scheduled a five-day debate, culminating in the meaningful vote, which is a requirement for any Brexit deal to be ratified and enter into force. 
At that point, Parliament began to assert its authority over the process. It became increasingly clear over the following days and weeks that there was not a majority in the House of Commons in favour of the Prime Minister's deal. The main, widely voiced opposition of parliamentarians concerned the so-called backstop arrangements. Under the terms of the withdrawal agreement, the backstop would kick in at the end of the transition period in the event of no deal being reached on the future relationship to ensure there was no hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The government admitted that it had not been able to secure a unilateral right to terminate the backstop, should it ever be activated, but argued that this was because the backstop was an insurance policy necessary to uphold the promises in the Good Friday Agreement, irrespective of what happened in the future relationship negotiations, and that in any event, neither side wanted the backstop to enter into force. Parliament demanded that the government publish its legal advice on the backstop. When the government refused to do so, in contravention of Parliament's orders, MPs, for the first time in British history, found the government in contempt of Parliament. When the government then published the legal advice, this confirmed that there was indeed a risk that the UK could, could be stuck in endless rounds of negotiations with the EU and that unless a suitable alternative arrangement was agreed, the backstop would endure indefinitely. The government was also defeated on an important procedural motion in the House of Commons that allowed MPs to vote on amendments to the motions concerning the deal, meaning that Parliament could now vote to direct the government to do what, what to direct what the government should do, rather than simply indicate whether it was or was not in favour of the government's proposals. As the debate continued, there were increasing calls from senior government politicians for the Prime Minister to postpone the vote rather than suffer a substantial defeat. These calls did not look like they would be heeded until the day before the vote, when the Prime Minister gave a statement in Parliament that she would seek further assurances from the EU27 about the operation of the backstop before putting the deal to a vote in the House of Commons. In her statement, the Prime Minister reiterated that she still believed that her deal was the only possible deal to deliver Brexit. She challenged her detractors to recognise the significant downsides of the numerous alternatives to her deal being advocated in the debate, stating that the choice before Parliament was her deal, no deal or no Brexit. Yesterday, the Prime Minister visited leaders in the Netherlands, Germany and the EU institutions. Reports suggest that the unanimous response was warm words in support, but no appetite for a renegotiation of the backstop. Today, Donald Tusk's invitation to the EU27 leaders setting out the agenda for the European Council summit due to take place tomorrow states, and I quote, the intention is that we will listen to the UK Prime Minister's assessment and later we will meet as 27 to discuss the matter and adopt relevant conclusions. As time is running out, we will also discuss the state of preparations for a no-deal scenario. Theresa May has today sought to shore up her position by arguing that there is still scope for progress with the EU on the backstop and that a change of leadership now would cause even more uncertainty and jeopardises the UK's chance of reaching a deal in time. Pointedly, she also sought to emphasise at Prime Minister's questions this afternoon that by voting to topple her, Conservative MPs would increase the prospect of a Corbyn government. An increasingly impatient Parliament is demanding the Prime Minister's deal be put to a meaningful vote before Christmas. If she is still in place after this evening, it would appear that there is little room for manoeuvre for the Prime Minister 
as she continues to stall the vote in the hope that either the EU27 or Parliament will change its mind. If she falls this evening, her successor will need to move quickly to set a new course for the next few months that can secure the backing of Parliament, or they risk political gridlock while the UK drifts towards a no-deal Brexit. Andrew, thank you very much for setting the scene. Um, so, what's next? First of all, I'm going to turn to Charles to uh, give us an overview of possible Brexit outcomes. Thank you, Susan. Um, the uh, topic, what next, is obviously an easy one to deal with. For those who are hoping that uh, we will offer now our clairvoyant predictions on the next uh, plot development in this soap opera, um, a soap opera, of course, that does have short-term impacts on things like currency, so we, we don't dismiss the importance of the latest development. Uh, but for those of you hoping for those clairvoyant predictions, um, you may be disappointed. Um, what we would like to offer you instead, though, is uh, a bit more on the analytical framework that will help you to understand what the substantive outcomes are and what they might mean uh, and how they might arise. Um, others are, of course, more uh, willing to offer predictions for the next uh, 24 hours. Peter and I were in Silicon Valley talking to clients last week about, among other things, Brexit. Uh, and we happened to bump into one of David Cameron's uh, previous special advisors, uh, who confidently told us almost a week ago that Theresa May was going to delay the meaningful vote. Uh, the same source um, tells me uh, that the letter of comfort that the EU will offer uh, has already been drafted in relation to the backstop. I don't know whether that is true, but I offer you that gossip uh, by means of antidote to the uh, logical process points that uh, I was going to focus on. Uh, so in terms of, uh, if we set aside day-to-day uh, -day what might happen literally next, uh, there are really four potential outcomes uh, to the current process. One is, and, and, and when we talk about outcomes, really, I think we're focused on what will happen in the immediate aftermath of March 29th next year. Uh, the first, of course, is that no deal is done before then, and we exit without one. Uh, the second is the path that Theresa May has laid out, her deal. The third is no Brexit, uh, and we can talk about what would need to happen to get there. Uh, and the fourth is uh, that there is a Brexit, potentially not on March the 29th, but on the basis of a new deal. Uh, it is more difficult to talk about that rather diffuse option. But what we wanted to do was focus on uh, the first three of those, uh, what they would mean, and uh, then Andrew will talk a little bit about some of the routes uh, to getting to those. Uh, the first one on this slide is EU membership. You can also call that, call that no Brexit. And what we have uh, learned recently uh, is, of course, that this is a technical possibility. Revocation of the Article 50 notice is possible. It has always been clear that it was possible with the agreement of all 28 member states. What the CJA ruling of the last week has confirmed is that it would also be possible for the UK unilaterally to revoke as a matter of EU law. That sets aside the question of what constitutional processes would be required in the UK for that revocation to happen. Uh, 
but the other interesting thing that the CJEU confirms, and this is, uh, I think, significant, is that were the UK to revoke its Article 50 notice, uh, there would be no question as to whether the terms of its membership would be changed. It would simply uh, cancel the process that has been begun and the UK would remain a member on its current terms. That is at least the legal position, what the political consequences of doing so and how that might affect uh, the terms of our membership in due course is of course a separate matter. Uh, the second uh, option uh, and one that uh, we have to regard as a, a very material possibility now uh, is uh, the possibility of uh, no deal. Um, and uh, I think it is worth making two points here. What you'll see, of course, from, from the table is that that uh, means all of the features of the EU that we currently are subject to and benefit from would cease immediately uh, uh, in return for the opportunity to commence any new trade deal equally immediately. I'd make two points about this option. Uh, one is uh, the references to what is called a managed no deal, um, because it's interesting to wonder what that means. What it means, if anything, is that there may be limited exceptional areas in which the EU and all member states and the UK agree that short-term measures to avoid the most severe disruption, for example, flights not being able to land, medicines not being able to cross borders, that there may be mini-deals that could be done on a short-term basis exceptionally in respect of some of those. The second suggestion as to how a deal may be, quotes, managed um, is uh, that offered, I think, by Owen Patterson uh, today, uh, which we've seen a couple of times before. Um, and that is the suggestion that, that there is some sort of uh, provision uh, under Article 24 that, allow, that means that in the interim period, while we negotiate a future relationship, uh, we will continue to benefit, the UK will continue to benefit from uh, the no-tariff position it enjoys within the EU at present. This relies on a construction of that article, um, that uh, an, an article that is designed to facilitate the introduction of a free trade agreement. It relies on the interpretation of that that suggests that uh, the current EU membership constitutes the prior position that uh, is to be protected while those, uh, in respect of that future free trade agreement. That seems to me, at least, to disregard the EU's position and what seems the correct position, that that agreement cannot be commenced, that agreement process cannot be commenced until we have left the EU, at which point we become a third country subject to whatever WT arrangements we have in place at that time with or without schedules. Uh, so, so that is at least a highly questionable uh, interpretation which uh, others may come back to. The last two uh, options on that table constitute the two limbs of Theresa May's deal. 
Um, uh, the first is the transition period, where what you see is a high degree of continuity, um, uh, subject to, on the one hand, loss of involvement in EU decision-making, but an additional ability to negotiate, although not enter into uh, free trade agreements with other countries, and indeed the free trade agreement with the EU that the UK would be seeking. And the second limb, the most controversial at the moment, as Andrew has already um, explained, which is the backstop arrangement, which would apply at the end of any transition period and indefinitely until any new future relationship is agreed. What you can see immediately from that table, and I won't go through it in detail, is that that is a highly complex arrangement because it requires differential treatment in some respects, but not all, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Um, I will only pick up on uh, one point to explain it, which is the very last box on that page, which talks about the commencement of new trade deals. As we understand it, what the backstop would allow is not only the negotiation of free trade deals in that period, but their conclusion, and to a limited extent, they're coming into effect, but only to the extent that they don't interfere with the customs arrangements under the backstop. So, for example, it may be possible, and I'm sure Aline will talk about this in more detail, to, to commence some of the provisions in relation to, for example, services, but not goods. Andrew, do you want to talk us through both um, Theresa May's um, Brexit roadmap and also possible alternatives as well? Yep. So this is an attempt to map out what could happen in the future. And I, as Charles said, it's Paul's task of predicting the future, but this at least sets a roadmap for what we do know. So starting at the top left-hand corner of the slide, Theresa May has secured agreement with the EU27 on a deal. She is currently looking for assurances about the interpretation and application of that deal, but she has the agreement there unless she chooses to reopen it. So the question is what happens next? I think if we are to follow along Theresa May's own planned roadmap, there are three inflection points that will take place and that will cause a change in uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU. So the first inflection point is between now and March 2019, that's whether or not the UK will ratify and implement the agreement that is currently agreed. So that, as, as we know, would require a meaningful vote in favour of that agreement, but also importantly, an implementing act of parliament which would have to go through both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, uh, and that would not be able to be completed overnight. So really that meaningful vote cannot take place at the last moment. There is still an extra step after the meaningful vote to get it through. And of course, if Parliament votes down the deal, going immediately down on the slide, there are some alternatives to Theresa May's plan, which we'll come back to. But just for the moment, let's assume that Parliament backs the deal that would mean that immediately upon reaching the 29th of March, the UK would go into the transition period, which, as Charles said, provides for a large degree of continuity. And then that would last until December 2020, at which point either 
the UK and the EU will have reached a new deal about the future relationship, in which case that would come into effect, or it would have to decide, the UK would have to decide whether to extend the transitional period. If it chose to extend the transitional period, that can be extended once for a time-limited period up to the end of December 2020, or if we decide not to extend the transition, that's the point at which the backstop would kick in. But assuming that we do extend the transition, there's a further inflection point at the end of December 2022, which is the longest period of time that we can be in the transition. And at that point, if we still haven't agreed a future relationship with the EU, we would fall into the backstop. And as I said before, the legal view on the operation of the backstop, as it is currently formulated, is that it is indefinite unless and until a future relationship which provides for no border, nor hard border, in Northern Ireland, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, then that would remain. So, turning now to what happens if Theresa May fails, if the UK Parliament votes down her deal, or indeed if she is no longer Prime Minister, even before her deal reaches the meaningful vote, we would expect a change in leadership, unless Theresa May has a change of heart. In which case, there are ultimately three possible alternative options. As Charles said, there are really only four outcomes possible. There's lots uh, said about different um, mechanisms for reaching those outcomes, like a second referendum or a general election, but really, it's important to distinguish between the ends and the means. The three ends, if we don't reach Theresa May's deal, are no deal, no Brexit, or a new deal. It's possible that the new leader, whoever they may be, could decide, without anything further, to pursue a no deal Brexit. They could very easily do that within the time available and there would just be a question then of whether there's scope for mini-deals to mitigate any impact, as Charles discussed. Equally, the new leader could at least try to pursue, to revoke Article 50. However, there is some legal question as to the constitutional requirements in the UK to be able to validly revoke Article 50. I might come back to that in a second. And thirdly, of course, the new leader could try and seek to renegotiate the deal. Now, there's a question of how much meaningful renegotiation can be done in the time available. So you would expect anything more than slight tweaking, if that would require an extension of Article 50. The Article 50 can be extended only by unanimous approval of the EU27 and the UK. So we would have to agree as the UK to that extension. And at that point, we would have some more time. It's not clear yet how long Article 50 can be extended for, but it would need to be subject to the negotiation of the various parties. And then the question is, what, what do we do next? 
there's obviously the three options set out there, but there is a question as to how the UK itself can reach a position where there is a consensus view as to the correct course of action. Either there needs to be a majority in Parliament for a, a particular outcome, or if Parliament cannot make its mind up, that's the point at which it perhaps becomes inevitable that the question is sent back to the people, either by way of a general election in order to change the arithmetic in Parliament behind a particular course of action, or through a second referendum. Of course, a second referendum could lead to a general election and vice versa. However, well, taking those one by one, in order for there to be a second referendum, there would need to be an act of parliament providing for the terms of that referendum, including importantly the question put to the people, but also the campaign period, the campaign expenditure, who would be the uh, official campaign for each side, uh, and so that there's a lot to decide there. It would not be a simple uh, bill to pass through Parliament, and perhaps unsurprisingly, it would be a controversial bill. So it could take some time. Secondly, a general election. There are two ways now, under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, to call a general election. Either Parliament must pass a vote of no confidence in the government, and then after 14 days, no new government has been formed that can command the vote, the confidence of Parliament. At that stage, after the 14 days have elapsed, that automatically triggers a general election. Alternatively, it's possible for Parliament, by a two-thirds majority, to vote to go straight to a general election. However, that will require the Conservative Party to vote for the election, which at the moment looks unlikely. So let's imagine either or both of those things have happened, a second referendum and or a general election. That could present a clear decision by the UK, either through the people or the parliament, for a particular course of action. And so how would you get there? Well, if we decide on a no-deal Brexit, as we've said, that's very easy. We just do nothing and it is the automatic consequence of that on 29th of March or at the end of the Article 50 period. But there is potentially scope for mini-deals. If we want to stop Brexit, that would require a revocation of Article 50. And as we said, we can do that as the UK unilaterally as a matter of EU law, but there would be a question of whether it can be done as a matter of UK constitutional law without an act of parliament. So the safest course of action there would be for the government at that point either to pass an act of parliament giving itself, the, or seeking an act of parliament to empower it to revoke, or to include that as a necessary consequence of a no Brexit outcome of a referendum, for example, in the act of parliament providing for that referendum. And then finally, in terms of a new deal, there is scope potentially for a new government with a renewed uh, democratic mandate to seek to renegotiate. However, all of the things on the last slide that are necessary in order for that deal to 
be ratified and come into force still apply. So the steps would be that you would need a meaningful vote in Parliament, you would need an implementing act of Parliament, and then you would need the EU Parliament to consent to that deal. So there would be a lot of legwork to be done. And as we've seen over the last two years, this progress is made slowly. So we'd really perhaps be rubbing up against the end of the Article 50 period. And there would be a substantial question about how much could be achieved in the time available. But it's still a theoretical possibility. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm going to turn back now to Charles. Charles, could you take each of those four sort of Brexit outcomes and just sort of summarise those processes for us? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that very quickly. Um, uh, what you see on this chart is, 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 is pretty straightforward. If you look at no deal, um, there are essentially no steps that need to be taken to get there. Uh, to be clear, that, that first step about mitigation, um, and this also applies to the domestic legislative process, the uh, great reform bill as it was, the um, SI storm that is going on, um, that is not necessary for us to get to no deal. It is merely uh, a necessary means of mitigating some of those impacts in accordance with current government policy. So no deal, very easy to get there. Theresa May's deal, less easy. Look at all those steps, um, particularly the parliamentary steps, two of them, that need to be got through. Um, uh, but those steps are known. Uh, so, so the requirements to get there are known uh, and they are difficult, uh, but that contrasts with the, the last two options, where what you will see in the, in, on the left-hand side of both um, is a high degree of uncertainty. First, about how you embark upon either of those parts, because what it clearly requires is a change in direction whether that is a change in personnel, a change in government, or a change in mind. And there are numerous ways in which any of those could happen, but none is straightforward nor quick. Although I suppose it may be said that Theresa May's ability to change her mind can be, uh, can be quick on occasion. Um, uh, even if there is such a change in direction, uh, there's then a procedural question about how you create the opportunity to give effect to that. First, what sort of, as Andrew mentioned, what sort of further democratic mandate might be required? And alongside that, how do you create the time and space for that democratic mandate to be sought? And then for any renegotiation or revocation uh, to take place. So those are processes that are uncertain in their inception, uncertain in their progress, and uncertain in their outcome. So quite a lot of uncertainty. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Um, thank, and thank you, Andrew, as well. I'd like to turn now. There's been a lot of um, concern expressed about, about the backstop. Um, so if we just pause there, and I'm going to turn to Aileen and, and just use your crystal ball and, and talk to us a little bit about, well, if we did get there, what would life be like in that backstop? Thank you, Suzanne, and uh, thank you all for, for listening to our, to our webinar today. Indeed, I mean, the backstop, as, as was discussed before, is just one aspect of one of the scenarii that we are talking about today. And it does go uh, very much, and in that, of course, I mean, it is part of the withdrawal agreement, so subject to um, the whole existence of the backstop requires the withdrawal agreement to survive and to be implemented. 
But what we wanted to, to walk you through today is really have a, a bit of a deep dive into that specific protocol, what it means for you as traders or your clients, and what it means for the trade that both the UK and the EU27 will enjoy under the backstop, but also what it means for Northern Ireland uh, as a sort of uh, um, separate little trading entity under that backstop solution, backstop protocol. So first of all, a quick introduction. I mean, and, and apologies if, if, if you already, of course, know that, but it's always useful to just take a quick step back and, and, and reflect on, on where we are. So when, when, the UK, uh, when, when the UK leaves the EU, it will, of course, as you will know, also leave the EU customs union. And during the transition period, the UK, however, will continue to apply the same rules as the EU ones, meaning that access to each other's markets, i.e. access from, for UK traders to the EU27 market and vice versa, will continue on current trading terms. The transition end date, as you know, is under the withdrawal agreement set to last until 31st December 2020. And we would hope that both parties, i.e. The, the UK and the EU27, will have reached an agreement on what their future trading relationship will look like before the end of the transition period, i.e. before the end of December 2020. But if that is not possible, if, if for some reason, political or legal, it is not the case, the UK and the UK was to leave the EU before a new agreement uh, could commence, the parties have agreed that a specific fallback, a backstop solution, will apply such time as that future EU-UK future agreement commence. It is worth noting, however, that there is an alternative to the application and implementation of that backstop solution. And the alternative, of course, would be for the UK to request, as, as Charles and Andrew mentioned earlier, uh, before the 1st of July 2020, an extension of the transition period. Right. But what is this backstop? What is that, this protocol? And, and what is in that backstop? Well, the backstop solution establishes a customs union and not the customs union, right? So it's a customs union that in the protocol is referred to as, uh, and I quote, the single customs territory. And that, under that customs territory, um, there is uh, an absolute requirement uh, that there will be no tariffs, quotas, or checks on rules of origins between the EU27 and the UK as a whole, which, of course, includes Northern Ireland. I just want to repeat that because it's, it's very important to keep that in mind. The backstop establishes a customs union that avoids the need for tariffs quotas or checks on rules of origins between the EU and the UK as a whole. That means that the Union Customs Codes, which for the traders who are online um, know as the UCC, uh, which sets out the provisions that apply for releasing products into free circulation within the EU, will continue to apply to Northern Ireland. But there will be some different rules that will apply for Great Britain, and I will touch on that a bit later on. This means that Northern Irish businesses will not face any trade restrictions when placing products on the EU single market because, in effect, Northern Ireland remains within single market for goods. However, under the backstop solution, Northern Ireland and Great Britain would not enjoy, enjoy the same level of regulatory harmonization. 
when trading goods with the EU27, and that will have an impact on trade with the EU as a whole. Also uh, worth highlighting at this stage that the backstop solution does not cover trade in services that are excluded from that specific protocol or fishery and aquaculture products, but it does apply to agriculture, which was a major aspect of the negotiation for that backstop to um, come into force and be included in, in the withdrawal agreement. My introduction on the, on the backstop being over, I wanted to just go through, walk through, walk with you through the three trading scenarios that will apply when the protocol comes into force. And the first one is what is the effect of that backstop on trade between the EU27, which of course includes the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Considering uh, the overarching interest uh, of both parties um, to avoid border controls between Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland will remain under that specific backstop arrangement, part of the EU single market as regards goods. And as I said before, this, this means that the EU rules that apply to trading goods will continue to apply to Northern Ireland. That includes the UCC, but also EU anti-dumping, anti-subsidy and safeguard legislations, rules regulating the placing on the market of goods, for instance, CE marking standards for those goods, think medical devices, cosmetics, toys regulation, and so on. Uh, export control rules and sanctions regimes that are uh, derived from EU law will continue to apply to Northern Ireland under the backstop. So in a nutshell, as a result of this uh, level of al alignment with EU law, trade in goods between Northern Ireland and the EU27 will not be subject to customs procedures or controls. But that is not necessarily the case when we now move on to the relationship with in trade with Great Britain under the backstop. Indeed, Great Britain will, not, will be part of the single customs territory, but will not be subject to rules of the EU single market as regards goods. In a sense, this means that there will be two regulatory frameworks for goods in the UK, one that will apply for Northern Ireland and another for Great Britain. And this is what it means for Great Britain and Northern Ireland trades. Uh, since Northern Ireland will remain part of the EU single market for goods, there will be a need for checks on goods entering Northern, Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. This is, of course, very important from a political perspective, but also for traders, this will have practical consequences. Indeed, compliance checks with EU standards to, and I quote the Commission, protect consumers, traders, and businesses in the single market will have to be performed. And that is between trade, trade uh, within uh, the UK, i.e. Uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The, the, the practicalities of, the, of those checks are still to be uh, set out. Uh, but the parties have agreed that they will take place as follows. For industrial goods, checks will be based on risk assessment and will take place in the market or at traders' 
premises and by UK competent authorities, of course. For agricultural products, checks already exist, as I'm sure you know, and those check between um, uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and those will continue to exist, but will have to be in, will increase in scale as a result of that implementation of the backstop. What does it mean now, finally, for EU27 and Great Britain trade? Well, as I said, again, worth um, uh, remembering that there will, not be, there will not be any tariffs or, uh, or quotas or uh, checks on rules of origin between EU27 and GB trade, but on account of the different regulations that will apply to goods in the EU and Great Britain, there will be some specific customs, procedures, and controls that will apply. Um, indeed, the backstop provides that the UK and the EU27 uh, shall adopt a specific set of rules, but there is a fallback option for those rules as part of the fallback uh, protocol that is the backstop for those rules um, uh, to apply. And in effect, I mean, we have little time to go into the details of, of those, but for the traders online who are uh, familiar with EU-Turkey uh, customs arrangements, they will be very similar to those. So the EU, these new trade rules between EU27 and Great Britain will uh, create a new AUK movement certificate uh, that will, in a, in a, serve, sir, in a sense, sorry, able um, serve as evidence to prove that goods qualify as custom territory goods. Uh, consequently, trade uh, between EU27 and Great Britain will be subject to import and export custom procedures um, that will have to, to take place um, uh, in the in, um, um, EU27 or Great Britain. So just uh, to, to wrap up, three different examples in practice under the backstop. For example, uh, let's take an industrial or an agricultural good moving from Belfast to an EU27 port, let's take Rotterdam for example, that specific good will not be subject to additional procedures or controls under the backstop arrangement. This is because Northern Ireland remains part of the EU single market for goods under the backstop protocol, and the same rules that we are, are in existence today continue to apply under that specific future arrangement. By contrast, however, goods moving from Dover to EU27 through Calais, for instance, would have to obtain a, this specific new AUK movement certificate, which will prove that duties do not have to be paid on that specific product. Similarly, good, similar, similarly sorry, goods moving from Liverpool to Belfast will be subject to some sort of checks uh, as Northern Ireland will remain uh, in the single market of goods and the regulatory requirements will differ. This is all I appreciate a bit um, uh, complex uh, to, to summarize in five minutes, but I do hope that this is useful and I'm going to now leave and pass on the floor to my partner Peter. Thank you, Eileen. Uh, so, there is always uh, a danger in talking about the practical implications of Brexit for business that one over-eggs uh, the risk and starts drifting into project fear or, as Charles and I were told last week, it's all Y2K. Um, we have found that whilst many businesses are very well advanced in their planning, uh, a lot uh, still take the view that politically uh, a hard Brexit is an unlikely outcome. I don't want to 
revisit a lot of the uh, uh, work we've done on previous webinars and is available on our Brexit Hub in terms of the types of preparation you can make. Um, but it's fair to say that the most recent events, as uh, Andrew and Charles have outlined, uh, certainly make no deal a measurably more significant possibility than it was perhaps three or four months ago. And that's certainly the way in which many, many of our business clients and the authorities are looking at it. I've outlined on this slide four of the main questions to think about in terms of uh, no deal or indeed some of the varieties that we've touched on. But a key point I'd like to make now, which is perhaps different from where we have been before, is that the existence of Theresa May's deal, should it go forward, provides at least some clarity as to the process that will be followed over the next few years, and in particular, the existence of some new inflection points, the inflection point from the current situation to the transition, and from there into the backstop. Uh, on this slide, which we will circulate after uh, circulate the pack after the webinar, uh, effectively takes the earlier slide that Charles talked to briefly and puts in context the changes first from membership to no deal, and secondly, looking at uh, membership to transition to the backstop in some sort of business context and how one should be thinking about it as a business person. And it is those, those inflection points, and particularly the difference between transition and the backstop that uh, Aileen mentioned, that is important to think about. Uh, it certainly uh, is an important context to think, well, there will be different rules, for example, regarding trade and services during the transition as during the backstop. And we know that we will move into the backstop at either the end of 2020 or the end of 2022, should the UK extend the transition. So just moving on then, there are really two things to think about for businesses. The first is that uh, inevitably, uh, as, as, as we've only reiterated today, there is a lot of uncertainty around. And there are a number of ways that, as we've previously outlined, to think about that uncertainty. One is to make sure that uh, one's looking not just uh, at the UK position, but also globally, not just at your own impacts on, on your own business, but also the way in which external events can indirectly affect you, for example, through the supply chain, and then not simply at the legal principles, but also how they can affect the business on a very granular level. And it's important in that assessment, not just to think of the big picture, so authorizations, et cetera, but also to think about the effects on your back office are your IT systems going to be fit for purpose through these processes? And then there are uh, a set of actions that one can take, both uh, proactively, changing things, uh, perhaps more passively, sitting back a little in certain areas, and finally, keeping a very careful eye on the developments, because as I think we've illustrated today, they are extremely and increasingly technical. One specific, uh, to think about looking forward is that there are different ways in drafting contracts, whether that's a supply agreement or an M&A transaction, uh, to think about those in the context of the two major worlds that Andrew and Charles have outlined. If we're moving into a no-deal Brexit, because of the number of impacts there, 
that means that in entering into new contracts, one needs to think about a whole range of questions. How do I deal with regulatory responsibilities before and after Brexit? How do I deal with responsibility for data before and after a no-deal Brexit? Would, would the scale of change in a no-deal Brexit, uh, or should it, constitute a material adverse change, perhaps allowing termination or allowing some other change mechanism in the contract? Alternatively, if we look at uh, if Theresa May's deal goes ahead, the impact into the transition period will still exist. So, for example, the definition of a territory, if it's defined by reference to the European Union, will still change in a contract. But other than that, most of the other impacts will be pretty soft, and the amount of preparation for business there in terms of contracts, pretty light. However, when we move into the backstop, as we've already illustrated, there will be more significant changes at that point at the end of 2020 or 2022, which one can already anticipate and can start to think about how to draft clauses in agreements. Now, one of the most significant issues we've consistently found since the possibility of Brexit came onto the horizon uh, for businesses is around data, and therefore Eduardo is just going to give a little update on where we are on that subject. Thank you very much. As you're saying, the impact of Brexit on the ability to exchange and monetize personal information is one of the most significant. And this is perhaps important from the point of view of appreciating the difference that a deal-based Brexit would have versus a no-deal Brexit. And the reason why I'm highlighting this is that the importance of preparing for the possibility of a no-deal Brexit becomes more acute. And to take you very briefly through the difference that this would make, in, the, in a situation where the government succeeds in obtaining parliamentary approval to the proposed Brexit deal, the reality is that it would be business as usual as far as data protection is concerned, or almost business as usual from the point of view of international data flows between the UK and the EU and the EU and the UK, there would be no real change, at least during the transition period. It would be as if the UK, for all practical purposes, was part of the EU and the European Commission has confirmed that it, the UK would not be treated for the purposes of international data flows as a third jurisdiction. The UK has also indicated that that would be reciprocated. And even after the transition period, there is much hope that the European Commission would grant the UK an adequacy determination which would extend the situation. However, if you look at the possibility of a no-deal Brexit and the consequences in, in this space, we see a very radical, radically different situation where automatically the UK as a third country has no mechanisms in place to deal with transfers of data from the EU because no adequacy finding would be granted straight away or perhaps ever. And also the mechanisms that are likely to be in place today whether we're talking about model clauses, intergroup agreements, contracts between EU 
customers on UK-based data processors would not be appropriate simply because at the moment the UK does not need to rely on any of those types of mechanisms and experience suggests that the UK UK entities are typically positioned as exporters of data. Therefore, all of those agreements, all of those mechanisms would need to be revised. Likewise, in terms of transfers from the UK to other jurisdictions, not just the EU, but to the US, to India, to China, all those transfers would be restricted. And again, the mechanisms currently available are EU-based mechanisms that would be of no use in the UK. So once again, that triggers the need for new contractual uh, procedures to be put in place in order to deal with that sort of uh, no-deal situation. So um, to, to, to summarize, in terms of actions and, and preparation, from what we have heard today, it is um, certainly a possibility that we could uh, hit the 29th of March in a no-deal scenario for which we need to prepare and we need to prepare now. The way to prepare for that in the context of UK data protection law is to assess what transfers are currently in place, what are taking place, what data flows are taking place, what mechanisms are in place, how to amend them, how to ensure that customers in the EU are protected if you are a vendor, how to ensure that, for example, parent companies in Asia or in the US can continue to receive data and put those uh, revised agreements in place between now and the end of March. And um, that's essentially the, uh, the course of action that we are recommending in the spirit of still hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. Thank you very much, Eduardo. So just to, to finish up, um, how we can help, and a reminder of our Brexit resources. Um, so for further guidance, you can visit our dedicated Brexit hub at hogannovels.com uh, forward slash Brexit. This contains all of our latest thinking. Um, you can also sign up there for the regular Brexit bulletin email. Um, you can use the button that's at the top of the page there. Um, finally, as always, if you want to discuss particularly how Brexit might impact your own business and how you can best prepare in the light of the most recent developments, uh, please do get in touch with one of us or another member of the Brexit Task Force, or you can email brexit at hoganlovells.com. So it just remains for me to say thank you to each of my colleagues for joining me today, um, to thank you all for listening, to wish everybody a very Happy Christmas and New Year, and to say that we'll be back with you um, for the next of this webinar series in January. Thank you all very much.